if you are new to our church community, let me welcome you to Grace Point. It's a pleasure to have you join us. I'm huge. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, there is a sermon outline in your order of services that you might want to take out that will help you uh, follow along as we uh, unpack uh, some of these passages we're looking at this morning. There is also one uh, in the online bulletin as well. Let me actually pray for us. <clears throat> Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself and you speak in and through your word. We do pray that uh, as we do each Sunday, uh, pause our hearts, remove distractions so that we might sit in a place of unhurried space, anticipating your word to us. And so meet us now where we are by your spirit. Uh, And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time, uh, we are in the middle of our I Believe series on the Apostles' Creed, What Christians Believe. Uh, And the last few weeks, we've been looking at what we believe about Jesus, God's Son. Those of you who are regulars, you'll know that which is the largest section in the Apostles' Creed, uh, which really shouldn't be a surprise to us, because if you've never realized this, if you're wondering who is at the very center of the story of the Bible, it's the person and work of Jesus, God's Son. His birth, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and this week we're going to look at His return. Now, the Apostles' Creed now speaks of what we believe about the coming of Jesus. One, that He will return, and two, He returns to judge the living and the dead. Now, I want you to notice that the story of Jesus, and we've got that portion of the creed uh, printed out in your, order, in your sermon outlines. You notice that the story of Jesus isn't just the story of his coming, his birth, his suffering, his death for sin, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Notice it climaxes in his return. And I've been saying this for the last few weeks. The Apostles' Creed is not meant to be called intellectual doctrine, not some distant intellectual statement about what Christians believe. It's actually meant to warm our hearts. It's, it's meant to encourage us and strengthen us. It's meant to give us hope for the future. It's meant to be an anchor in our circumstances and to guide our living as followers of Jesus. Because it's a summary of what's at the heart of the Christian faith, uh, as revealed in the Bible. Truths that have been affirmed and defended and taught, uh, and truths that Christians have anchored in in the last 1,800 years. And so I want to say to you this morning, you're in good company if you believe these truths. And so this week we come to the last section of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, If you've got that there in front of you, I believe in Jesus, God's Son, who comes into the brokenness of my world to save. I believe He was crucified and He died for my sin. I believe He rose from the dead, overcoming the ultimate pain and suffering. I believe he He ascended to the place of authority where He rules and intercedes for me. But the story of Jesus is not complete until He returns. Until He returns to make everything right in your life and my life and our world when He comes to judge the living and the dead. Now, in your sermon outlines, I'm going to look at that under four headings. Hopefully, that will be helpful for you. Uh, Four headings there that you'll see in the sermon outline. The coming of a judge, the completeness of judgment, the comfort of judgment, and the challenge of judgment. The coming, the completeness, comfort, and challenge. Okay, so hopefully that will help you uh, remember some of the stuff we're looking at this morning. Now, here's the first one. I have to admit that the Bible's teaching on the coming of Jesus is probably not something we think about much about. I probably don't think about it as much as uh, I should. Uh, You know, in a church like ours, we make much a lot, you know, about the death of Jesus. But we probably don't talk a lot about His return, do we? 
But the Bible's teaching of the coming of Jesus, his return, is actually part of the Bible's story. <coughs> it's actually part of the story of the good news of Jesus. In fact, it's what makes the story of Jesus desirable and good. Uh, he comes back to make things right in our world. It's part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is why, uh, and, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Uh, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you'll notice that, you know, when we share in this Christian family meal, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, <coughs> for as you often as you eat the bread and drink from the cup, he says, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A lot of you will remember that because that's the flow. He came, he died, he rose, he will come again. That's the good news, right? In fact, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father yeah, is followed by a reminder to the disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. <clears throat> As they saw him ascend, the disciples of Jesus are actually told, why do you stand here watching? <clears throat> this same Jesus who has been taken from heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go. And, and Jesus himself, you know, he speaks of his coming again, his return, as a return that suddenly, that sudden, unexpected. That was the passage that was read for us from Luke 17. Uh, Jesus speaks of his return in the normality of our lives, right? They go about their lives, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're buying, they're selling. <clears throat> you know, I would add to it, they're studying, they're working, they're importing, exporting, they're increasing their portfolios of investment, they're holidaying. You know, some of you here, they're doing BJJ, they're playing darts after church, they're doing the bay run, singing at karaoke, drinking at the pub, like some of you do, I know, after church. And then verse 30 of Luke 17 says, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed, on the day I come. And so, so as, as Christians, if you're a Christian, one of the things you need to realize is that the normality of your life is not an indicator that Jesus is not coming or that His coming is distant. It's a reminder to us that He will come suddenly, unexpectedly, in the very normality of our lives. That's what Jesus says in Luke 17. Which is why Jesus' words to his disciples, when you read the story of Jesus in the, in the Gospels, the words of Jesus to his disciples is to be watchful and alert and prepare. In other words, the, the Christian posture uh, to the knowledge that Jesus is coming is to live in anticipation. Quite a number of you were getting married last year, right? And, you know, I <coughs> did so many weddings last year. For some of you, some of you are getting married this year. And what happens when you're going to get married? You live in anticipation for the wedding day. And I know for a lot of you, it was so stressful. And I don't know whether you live in anticipation for the wedding day or you just live in anticipation for the wedding day to end because I know that's what some of you said to me. Oh, I just wish it would come and it'd be over. But, but you know, it's, it's like that. We live with a sense of anticipation in the knowledge that He will come. Now, Matthew 24 and 25 actually speaks of that. Jesus speaks of how we prepare. But that's what it means to say, I believe, from there, he will come. It's to say, I believe that Jesus, the, the Jesus who died and rose to me will return as he said he would. The one who died for me will return. And so I need to live anticipating his imminent return. Now, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Now, this morning, there might be some people in the room, <clears throat> friends, family, you, you may not be a Christian, and so, you know, uh, so often, you know, the idea of Jesus returning <clears throat> is foreign to a lot of people. In fact, some of you, uh, you might have friends and family, and you might not even believe in the return of Jesus. But I think what really gets people is this idea that Jesus comes as judge. That's the one that really puts people off, right? 
from there, he will come as judge. You know, if you just say Jesus comes to love all, tolerate all, embrace all, not an issue. But, but the moment you say Jesus comes as judge, no one likes the idea of judgment because it sounds harsh and unloving. Now, maybe you've heard this or maybe you've heard this said. If God is love, he wouldn't judge anyone. A loving God, man, he would just embrace all people. I want to suggest to you that if God did that, it would make God unloving. Because you can't have justice without a judgment made. Uh, you can't have justice without judgment. I've said this before. If you are a victim of abuse or you know someone who's abused, your desire is not just to be free from the abuse, you'd want justice. <clears throat> you want the perpetrator judge called to account to pay for their crime. And so this is what happens, right? If you take away judgment, then you just don't have justice. That's why we are angered and we're grieved. We cry out, unfair. This is wrong. Where's the justice in this? When we see and when we, when we experience it and when we know people on the receiving end of evil and wickedness and abuse and exploitation, when, when people we love are taken advantage of or betrayed and cheated and scammed, when the perpetrator gets away with it, we want a judgment because we want justice. And so when no one is called to account for the wrong that has taken place, it's a problem, isn't it? I mean, you stand before a magistrate. <clears throat> um, Imagine you stand before a magistrate who says, you know, for me to judge the perpetrator of your abuse, you know, that would make me unloving. You know, you'd be incensed, wouldn't you? Even if you were someone who believed there was no right or no wrong. And you may have friends in your workplace. You might have friends at school, you know, who believe there's no right or wrong. You know, you hear people say, oh, there's no right or wrong, you know. Uh, you do you, I do, I do me, right? That's the, that's the moral relativist philosophy. No one should judge. Even if you believe that, your heart still wants justice for the oppressed. You care for the weak when they exploit it. It grieves you when you see the vulnerable abused. And it makes you angry when people you love on the receiving end of evil and wickedness and wrongs that you might relativize. And so here's the thing, right? We live in a crazy world, isn't it? Because we live in a world where people's heads or culture actually tells us, you do you, I do me, no right, no wrong. So intellectually, that's what we've been told. But our hearts always long for justice. And that's why you cannot have justice without a judgment. And that's why the coming of Jesus is good news, right? Because the return of Jesus means he comes as judge who will execute perfect justice. Now, Christian people actually believe that the return of Jesus will be marked by justice. And that's what Paul says about the coming of Jesus. Acts 17 verse 31 the Apostle Paul says, For God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising Him from the dead. And so the coming of Jesus is good news because it's marked by justice. Now, what does it mean to judge? Well, to judge is simply to make a call. <clears throat> right, wrong. Good, bad. Fit, unfit. That's what it means when an empire makes a call or when a referee makes a call. Or when the doctor makes a call, right? They are making a judgment. See, you can't live in, the, in our world without a judgment being made on anything in life. Well, Christian people believe that Jesus will come and he makes a call on the living and the dead. He executes justice. Now, uh, that brings us to our second point. Have a look with me, the completeness of judgment. <clears throat> Notice, <clears throat> he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. The coming of Jesus is complete. Notice, it is comprehensive. No one escapes his judgment. Uh, Paul writes the same thing, 2 Corinthians uh, 
uh, Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The living and the dead, past, present, future, all must give an account. A judgment will be passed. And, 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 and often I think we only focus on the first aspect of judgment because judgment often means separation, and that's true. There will be a separation. Uh, Jesus separates those who are His own and those who are not His own. We know He says that. Matthew 25, Jesus says that. The nations will be gathered and he will separate them the way a shepherd separates the sheep and the goat. But it's the second bit we don't get, do we? We don't talk much about because what we don't realize is judgment also means everything will be made right when he returns. He judges the living and the dead. Evil is called to account. The oppressor is punished. The wicked removed. Wrong made right, right? I mean, that's why you know those of you football fans, right? You guys, you guys get so upset when the ref makes a, ba- makes a bad call, right? And I see that because you will rant and rave on Facebook, and I know it's like, ah, okay, you guys are unhappy. Ref made a ba- bad call. But when the ref, you see, why? Because it's unjust. So we all want justice, right? And so Jesus' coming means he makes a call and he puts things right. And justice, like a never-failing stream, then flows. Amos 5, 24 becomes true. That's why the coming of judgment is always good news and desirable. You see, the story is incomplete until the king returns to make things right, to wrap things up. And there is no, there's actually no happily ever after unless evil is made to account, unless the oppressor is punished, unless the wicked remove and wrong made right. And so here's the thing, right? Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are <coughs> secular or Christian, There is no one I know, there's no one I know who does not recognize that the world we live in is a very broken place. You know it, I know it. Everyone wants a better world. And so whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you can actually imagine a world where pain and suffering actually doesn't exist because that's the desire of your heart, right? You can actually imagine a world without tears. The tears of loss and the tears uh, of grief are no more. You can imagine that. You can actually imagine a world where there is perfect justice and where there is lasting peace. Uh, You can actually imagine a world where what is lost is returned to you. A world where evil and wickedness is no no more. Now, here's the thing, isn't it? It cannot happen unless, unless evil is decisively removed. That, That happily ever after cannot happen unless every wrong is made right. Unless what you have lost is given back to you. And it's actually that longing in your heart and the heart of every individual, Christian or not, that it's that longing that's actually echoed in every culture, globally. You cannot save the world without removing evil completely. You cannot have a better world without re- removing evil completely. <clears throat> and so, it's true in all the great stories of our culture, which is why we love our movies, right? Uh, you think of Harry Potter, the solution, you know, is, you know, Harry Potter, the solution is not to tolerate Voldemort. No, right? He's got to be removed for happily ever after. Uh, in the Marvel Universe, the solution is not to tolerate Thanos. No, the solution is to remove him. In the Lord of the Rings, the solution is not to tolerate Sauron. No, you've got to remove him. You see, if you've been abused or wrong, the solution is not to tolerate abuse. The solution is not to tolerate the injustice you've experienced. No, you can only have a better world 
There's only complete healing when every evil is removed, when the wrong is removed in your life and my life forever. Now, Christian people believe that the coming of Jesus as judge will make that happen. It's the best news ever because it means evil and wickedness will never win. It means those who have perpetrated abuse and got away with it are going to be punished. It means that there will be justice for those who have exploited others and got away with it. It means the travesties of injustice that we read about will be resolved. It means the wrongs that you have experienced in life will be made right. Why? Because His judgment is complete and comprehensive. Now, maybe in this room, or maybe you've got friends and family uh, who don't believe in a life after death. You know, some people will say that in your workplaces and your schools and universities. When you die, you die. Well, that's certainly the secular view. So most secular people do not believe in a judgment, a calling to account, or life after death. And so maybe you are like that. You don't believe in a judgment. We'll all be called to account. And this is what I would suggest you ask uh, friends and family or maybe colleagues in the workplace who believe there's nothing after. <coughs> it's worth asking them, what's the alter- if that's the alternative, consider the alternative. Living in a world where there is no final accounting required. Living in a world where there's no future judgment. One author puts it like this, a world in which the cries of the oppressed and the crimes of the oppressor are both ignored. Imagine that. An arc of history that bends towards oblivion and unaccountability, unaccountability and nothingness, not justice. Such a view of the world will leave the meaning tank permanently empty. We find ourselves like the escaped fish of Finding Nemo, floating on a vast sea of freedom, but always asking, what now? What now for those of us suffering at the hands of wickedness and evil? What now for those of us who have been abused, who have abusers have got away with it? What now for those of us who have been exploited and never got justice in our lives? If the secular is right, then at the end, there is nothing. No justice, no calling to account, no reversal, only a deafening silence. <coughs> if that's true, that this life is it, and it belongs, then, then it means this life today, right now, it means it belongs to the strong, not the weak. It belongs to the powerful, not the poor. It belongs to the oppressor, not the oppressed. It belongs to the abuser, not the abused. Can I say to you, if there is no future judgment, if this life is all there is, nothing beyond death, no calling to account, then there's no hope for those on the receiving end of suffering and evil and wickedness and abuse. There's no hope for those who've been exploited at the hands of evil. If there is nothing beyond this life, it means evil wins. Wickedness wins. The oppressor wins. The perpetrator wins. Yet, all our hearts long <clears throat> for a happily ever after ending. We want wrongs to be made right. We want evil to be, to, be, to be called to account. We want wickedness punished. We want justice to roll like never-ending stream. The good news is that there is a day when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. And so here's the thing, right? We live in a world that doesn't believe in the afterlife, doesn't believe in the judgment to come. And even if you didn't believe in a future judgment, every heart longs for it because every heart longs for justice. Can I say to you, there is a happily ever after because Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And, and that's what it means to say, I believe He will come to judge the living and the dead. 
Now, there, there is a problem that the coming judgment poses, okay? Uh, and here we wanna, I want to look at the comfort of judgment because it raises the question of how will we face the coming judgment? Uh, because here's the thing, right? If there is a judge who's going to judge completely and comprehensively, if he's going to punish evil, he's going to remove wickedness, if he's going to call injustice to account, if he's going to make right what's wrong, it, it also means he's got to have to deal with my wickedness and my evil and my injustice and, what, and the wrongs that I have perpetrated, right? If Jesus is going to do it completely and comprehensively, he doesn't just do it to people out there. He has to do it in my life. Because if he doesn't do it in my life, then, then justice is not complete, is it? You see, here's the thing, isn't it? We're pretty cool when we hear the Bible say that, you know, God or Jesus is going to judge the wicked. Because we don't put ourselves in that camp, do we? But, but here's the thing. If justice is going to be executed completely and perfectly, then he's also going to deal with my evil, my wickedness, the things I've perpetrated, the, the abuse and the, and, and the pain I've caused others. The, the coming of Jesus to judge means he will also judge the evil in us, the wickedness we've done, the injustice we've perpetrated, the, our exploitation of others, how we've taken advantage of others, how we've treated others unfairly, the suffering and grief we've caused others. So if there's going to be complete justice, then we should also be judged. You can't have judgment on others and not judgment on yourself because there can only be complete justice if there's complete judgment. Now, that's the problem, isn't it? But in light of the coming judgment, God doesn't say, judgment is coming, fix yourself. He doesn't say that, does he? God doesn't say, make up for all your wrongs in life. Earn your way so you escape the coming judgment. God doesn't say, keep the Ten Commandments and you won't be judged. God doesn't say, hey, make sure you live a good life or you'll be judged. <clears throat> now, I want to say to you, that is not how the Christian faith works. Because in Christianity, notice what happens. In Christianity, Jesus takes the judgment on himself, doesn't he? He pays the penalty for my evil. He pays the penalty for my wickedness, my wrongs, my sin, my guilt. He pays for the suffering I've caused others. He, he pays for my abuse and exploitation of others. Uh, he, he pays for the grief and suffering I've caused others. That's why Jesus came. And that's why, you know, in the creed, which you've got there in your sermon outlines, notice it's so, so important. We read, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead and buried. Because it's telling us Jesus was crushed in our place. And that's why in Christianity, right, as I've often said here at Grace Point, you are never called to work for your salvation. Uh, you are never called to try to make up for your past. You simply can't. You're not called to work to escape judgment. Notice in Christianity, you are called to trust Jesus' work for you. He suffered. The righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. The good for the evil. That's what he does. Christianity is a religion of works just not your works. That's worth writing down. That's worth remembering. Christianity is a religion of works, just not your works. It's all about Jesus' work that you receive, that you say yes to. There is no comfort in judgment without those words, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried. But there is comfort in coming judgment knowing that the one who will judge me is also the one who has dealt with my sins has dealt with my judgment. The one who would judge me 
has taken judgment on himself on my behalf. And so the coming of Jesus, for those who've trusted Jesus, means there is nothing to fear. Notice in Christianity, the averting of God's judgment is never secured by your hard work or your good work. No, in Christianity, Jesus takes your judgment, your punishment, your guilt, your shame, your condemnation. But there is a second thing I want to say about the comfort of coming judgment. Uh, it's there in your sermon outlines. And that's actually, that's actually the Heidelberg Catechism, question 52. Uh, it frames it this way. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with what a catechism is, we say it every week. It's basically how the truths of the Bible were taught in previous generations, uh, comprehensively, holistically, uh, so that Christian people actually knew, basically, the great truths of the Bible. And Heidelberg question 52 reads, What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? It's so interesting, isn't it, a question like that? Because knowing that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead is actually meant to be a source of comfort for Christians. Did you realize that? And notice the answer reads, In all my sorrow, in all my abuse, in all my suffering, in all the injustice I go through, in all my persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. Which is why there is no condemnation for the Christian in coming judgment. But notice the second half, and this is what should bring us comfort. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. He'll remove evil. But he will take me and his chosen ones to to himself into heavenly joy and glory. I want to say this to you this morning, so listen very carefully. Don't expect a perfect life. I know as Christians, we think life should be perfect. And I want you to hear this. Don't expect a perfect life. Because we live in a broken and fallen world. Some of you that I've spoken to have experienced that. There are enemies in life. Many of you know that to be true because of the pain or the abuse or the betrayal you've personally experienced in your life. We live in a fallen world run by sinful people. And it's not just sinful people out there, people who perpetrate hurt in our lives, but we also perpetrate hurt in the lives of others, don't we? Evil and wicked people live alongside us and we are one of them. Life will be unfair as you experience unresolved hurt. Did you hear that? Life is unfair because you will experience unresolved hurt, unresolved pain that others have caused you. It's not going to be a perfect world. Christians, you need to hear that. Many things will go wrong in your life, if not today, at some point, and, and you will sit there, and some of you have said this to me, huge, life is unfair. I want you to hear this this morning. Justice is only delayed, never denied. Did you hear that? Justice is only delayed, never denied. Be comforted knowing that it will come when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. That's why it's a comfort. You see, the Bible's teaching on the coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead is actually supposed to be a cause of joy and celebration and comfort for us who believe, who have trusted Jesus. Because it means one day, everything in your life and my life is going to be made right. Because it means every injustice is going to be overturned and reversed. Everything sad in your life will become untrue. Did you know that? Everything sad in your life will become untrue. And in a world that is broken and hurting, it means the cry of the oppressed will be heard. 
The orphan will be comforted. The fatherless will never be alone. Why? Because the oppressed will know justice. The poor will be filled. Every wickedness and evil removed forever. Now, I do want to say this. You remember this and let it comfort you. Justice is only delayed, never denied, because Jesus, your Savior and King, will come to judge the living and the dead. He will make things right. And everything sad in your life will become untrue. That's why in the words of Revelation 21, you know, right at the end, what do we read? It was read for us in the Bible reading. He wipes away every tear. No more grief. No more crying. No more mourning. For the old order of things has passed away. He makes things right. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism, question 52, says that comfort in my sorrow, pride, comes by lifting up my head and looking upward, eagerly awaiting the one who will make things right. And that's why it's crazy, you know. You know, you know, you know one of the final words in the Bible? You know, most people don't preach the final words in the Bible, but the final words in the Bible, Jesus says, I'm coming, and John responds by saying, come, Lord Jesus. Because that's the desire of every heart for the tears to be wiped away, for everything sad to be made untrue. Jesus makes that promise when he comes. And so John's response, the final words in the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. Justice is only delayed, never denied. It comes when he comes to judge the living and the dead. That's why, you know, when we share the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is the Christian family meal, Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, what, what we don't realize, right, <laughs> and I know the way we do it here at Grace Point, we don't sit down and have an actual meal. We have those little things. And some of you have actually said to me, hey, huge, you know, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's just a little tiny piece of bread. There's a little, little tiny cup. And, and I want to say to you, it's, it's like, you know, when you go to a wedding, it's the canopy. It's like a canopy. That's what it is, right? Because you take the canopy and you anticipate a banquet, isn't it? Well, Christian people do the same. When we share in the Lord's Supper, one of the things you're meant to remember is that this is the canopy. There is a feast waiting for me, right? I'm having a small taste of the best things to come because of Jesus. Why? Because Paul says, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, he died, he rose, he will come again. That's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We, we are tasting just a little bit of the goodness of God as we remember his death for us. And I really do hope that's going to be a comfort to many of you this morning. I, I, and I do hope that it will be a source of comfort for many of you, whatever you face. Whatever you face. Always remember, your justice is only delayed, never denied. It will come when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Now, in your order of services, right, every few weeks I'll do this for you guys. Each day, I want to encourage you this week, open your day with a prayer and a reading of the Heidelberg Catechism. You see the little outline? There's there's a second insert in there, (coughs) a, a handout with a set of Bible readings. And, and each day, as you do that, have a read of the Bible on some of the verses on the coming of Jesus, uh, and be reminded and encouraged to know what His coming will bring. You know that little handout, looking forward and preparing for the coming of Jesus? That's like a five-day Bible reading plan. Be encouraged to, to live preparing and anticipating His coming. And then be moved to praise as you think of His coming. Okay? 
there's a PDF version with links for those of you who are lazy to Google up, you know, those Bible verses and, the, and you know, uh, that, that song of praise. Uh, it'll be online. You just have to click on it and it'll take you straight to the right YouTube channel, okay? But maybe that's something you could do this week because that will actually start to help you th- look forward to and start to, to live your life in anticipation and prepare for the coming of Jesus to keep that on the horizon of your life. So that's there to help you. Every few weeks we'll do this for you guys. Lastly, the challenge of judgment. The coming of Jesus to judge, the living and the dead, is also a challenge because it is a very, very inconvenient truth. Okay? Because the coming of Jesus to judge of the living and the dead isn't just good news, it also spells bad news, right? Because the bad news is that judgment means there'll be a separation. No one likes to talk about that. Right? And, and that separation always hinges on your relationship with Jesus. Because at the cross, He died for you. Hands nailed to the cross, He suffered, His body broken for you, His blood shed for you. He takes your judgment, which means... A yes to Jesus means a yes to you when he comes. Receiving means he, means he receives you. But a no to Jesus means a no to you when he comes. Rejecting him means he rejects you. That means people's current response to Jesus matters. If you believe in justice, it's fair to assume there is a judge. No one can live their lives ignoring him, dismissing him, thinking there will be no judgment. Uh, the writer in Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed, right? We all have an appointment that we will keep, right? You don't have a choice with this one. We are destined or appointed to die once and after that to face judgment. Friends, at death, our response to Jesus is locked in forever. Remember the story Jesus tells, right? Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, Luke 16 is there in your outlines. Jesus says to the rich man, In your life, you had your opportunity, you had your chance, you had your time. In fact, you knew the Bible, and yet you did not repent. After death comes judgment. There is no second chance after death. It's fixed, it's permanent. You hear two words, welcome or depart. The one who welcomes him will be welcome, and the one who says depart to Jesus, Jesus merely gives them what they desire. And so what's the response Jesus is looking for? Work harder to save yourself? No. Do better in life to avoid judgment? No. Keep the commandments to avoid judgment? No. Jesus' response is always, trust my work for you. Trust my work for you. And we can say, I believe He will come to judge the living and the dead with confidence if we've trusted Jesus. But there is a second challenge. I want to point that out to us. If Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead... That should also motivate us, isn't it? If His coming is imminent, it should motivate us to live with great urgency in two areas of life. Our service to Him and our commitment to making Him known. Our service to Him, our commitment to making Him known. Because Jesus Himself tells us to prepare for His coming. And He says, prepare for my coming by not wasting your life, your gifts, your opportunities to use what He's given you to multiply His kingdom. I mean, those are the parables of Jesus from Matthew 24 and 25, right? Because if I truly believe His coming is imminent, it means I too will have to give an account. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I suspect the majority of us live our lives wasting the opportunities and the gifts God has given us. It never crosses our mind that we have to give an account for the way we live, for the way we treat others. 
Whether we have loved them or hurt them, whether we have torn them down or lifted them up, whether we have abused them or cared for them, because most of us think very little about the coming of Jesus. It's a blip on the horizon of our lives. Uh, the wicked servant in Matthew 24, and I hope you read it this week, wicked servant in Matthew 24, thought his master would never return and he abused those under his care. He was shown not to be a faithful and wise servant and he's cast down. Uh, the ten virgins uh, waiting for the bridegroom. The start of the wedding, there were ten of them. At the end, there were five because only five were prepared. The wicked and lazy servant in Matthew 25, the master returns, finds that he's... One of them has just wasted the wealth entrusted to him and is cast down. Now, let me tell you what's interesting about Matthew 24 and verse 25. In summary, the ten virgins look the same. Uh, the, the, the servants in the master's house, they all look the same. But the final judgment revealed the truth about them. I want you to listen very carefully, church. Living with no regard for the one whom you will have to give an account to, for the way you treat others, wasting the opportunities and gifts God has given you, squandering what God has given you for His kingdom may just mean you are unconverted. It may just mean you are unconverted. Now, there is a second part to the challenge this morning. Because if we truly believe Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, it would motivate us to make Jesus known. I mean, if men and women are destined to die once and then face judgment, then the delay is actually God's grace, isn't it? God is today being patient. Second Peter uh, you know, chapter 3, verse 8 to 12 tells us, right? God is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why He hasn't come, right? The Lord's patience means salvation. And, and let's be really, really honest, right? If we truly believe in the judgment to come, our hearts would be moved to making Jesus known because we truly believe men and women are lost without the gospel. True? Absolutely. I love this church, right? I've been here so long. I love this church. I love you guys, and you've got to hear this. We all say we believe in evangelism. There is not a single person in, in Grace Point, right? All 370 who, who, who will not say we believe in evangelism. We all say we believe in evangelism. But then we tell no one about Jesus. We say we believe in the coming judgment, but we warn no one about it. I believe He will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, do you really? When was the last time you prayed for someone who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time you tried to speak of your faith to a colleague, a friend, a neighbor? When did you last spend time with a friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time your heart was filled with such anxiety and grief because a friend or family member expressed disdain for Jesus? Can I say to you this morning, it's not the response of your friends or your family that you should fear. No, 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 no. It's actually the judgment that will one day face, that they will one day face, that should really fill us with fear and anxiety and anguish. Uh, Revelation 6 speaks of, of the final judgment where Jesus executes justice, uh, and Revelation speaks of how He executes judgment you read verse 15, verse 17. We read of the completeness and comprehensiveness of judgment. We read the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, who are high and low, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, the poor, the hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks. They cried out to the mountains and the rocks, come, crush us, hide us from the face 
of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? A day will come when he will judge the living and the dead, and we read of the fearsome judgment of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. And it's a day so fearsome that people would rather be crushed and buried by the mountain than face Jesus, their judge. Now, I actually don't think there is anything that can truly convey the judgment of Jesus. 30 years ago, uh, I was at a conference, and I remember listening to a message by Don Carson at the time on Revelation 6. I don't remember anything else he preached on, but I do remember uh, (coughs) a poem he wrote that he shared on the judgment that come. It goes something like this. He said, I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpets had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered before the great white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel who stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hands raised to heaven the time was no longer to be. And oh, the weeping and wailing as the loss were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. The poor man, he stood in the judgment, but his debts were too heavy to pay. The soul that had put off salvation, not today, I'll get saved one day, no time to think of religion, at last he had found time to die. And oh, the weeping and the wailing as the loss were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The moral man stood in the judgment, but his self-righteous rags would not do. The man who crucified Jesus had passed off as all mortal men do. And oh, the weeping and the wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Church, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. Remember that. He's coming to judge the living and the dead will be complete. A separation and to put things right. A separation and to put things right. He's coming as a comfort because justice is only delayed, never denied. Be comforted, knowing that it will come when He comes. But His coming is also a challenge, isn't it? Not just because you and I will have to give an account, but also a challenge to make Jesus known because all are lost without Him. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we come, and we come in a spirit of humility, and a spirit of repentance. Because for so many of us, Father, your coming is is not on the horizon of our lives. We do pray this morning, it might be a comfort to us for those of us who are struggling, but that it might also be a challenge for us, for those of us who live our lives as if there was no accountability, and who live our lives with no thought of the loss. So help us now, Father, keep the coming of Jesus who comes to judge on the living of the dead on the horizon of our lives. Amen.